welcome everybody this afternoon. We have a great uh, list of attendees today, so thank you for your time this afternoon on, a, on an August uh, afternoon. Um, I, with me today, I'm, first of all, I'm Rusty Vandeman. I'm the Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and with us today will be Mark Pfeffer, who is our Senior Portfolio Manager on Fixed Income and involved in many of our strategies and products, and also Grant Engelbart, also a Portfolio Manager as well. We do have a lot of ground to cover today, but we will leave ample time for Q&A at the end of our prepared remarks. So again, the, the reference guide we do produce on a quarterly basis, and again, is a tool to use uh, to understand what we're thinking here at CLS in terms of our outlook and in terms of our positioning. There also is plenty of educational material that is listed in the reference guide. Virtually all of the educational material did come from advisor feedback, and so, uh, this is a guide that will evolve over time, again, based off the feedback we get from advisors and from the field. The first page I would like to go to is the market review page, which is on page uh, 42 in the re current reference guide. And the performance we have outlined on this particular page is uh, really in all of our performance reports. We think it's an important way to kind of understand how balanced diversified portfolios are working. Obviously, it's been a great year for um, uh, globally balanced portfolios, as really all markets are up in double digits. The U.S. market is having a great year. The international markets are doing even better, particularly the emerging markets. Really, all equity asset classes, in terms of the broad uh, asset classes we're looking at, are at or near all-time highs. The bond market is also actually still doing pretty well, um, despite the interest rate volatility and the slight rise, particularly in the short end, the bond market continues to diversify. But the only asset class that is struggling is commodities, and commodities are still well off their all-time highs. We think this is a handy reference page. Um, also, the uh, key numbers to look at are the three and five-year numbers. In those particular cases, you can see strong numbers across the board, though the international equity markets have lagged and uh, that is one of the reasons why we are currently emphasizing international equity markets in the portfolios moving forward is that valuations currently are much more attractive than the U.S. markets. The next page I'd like to go to I think is really an important page because I think that as we see movement in it, um, it will basically change a lot of the narratives that we're currently hearing in the marketplace. And this is on page 14. And the slide is titled, Active Management is Cyclical. And this basically shows the percentage of the funds that are outperforming the S&P 500 on a five-year basis. This data is through the end of December. We will get it updated in the next reference guide. But I think it's an important point that shows the S&P 500 has really dominated performance in recent years. As a result, we're hearing a lot more talk about just going passive, uh, that, and also hearing that global uh, investing isn't as important as it once was, that diversification may not be as important as it once was, um, obviously, we believe that uh, market action is cyclical and would fully expect that this line will start bouncing and start moving higher as more funds start to outperform the S&P 500. And as that results, you'll probably hear a lot more about small cap investing again and value investing and active management. And there probably won't be as much pressure on fund fees um, as we've seen in the recent past as much more, more money has gone to indexing. Again, so I think this is a really important page, and I fully expect that this page will, um, the line will start to move higher. The next uh, one I'd like to talk about is page 16, and 
going on the road a lot and talking to advisors and investors, I think a lot of people are still concerned that we could be ready for a bear market. And of course, as an investor, as an advisor, we should always expect that we could have a market correction or a bear market in the near future. But I think this slide is, is really cool in the sense that it talks about if, if you had actually bought the market at the highest price each year, this tells how you would have performed over a longer time frame. And in short, if you had bought at the very high price of the stock market every year, at least for the S&P 500, your rate of return uh, over almost the last 20 years, actually this goes back to like 1999 through the end of 2016, your annualized return would have been over 6% a year as opposed to if you'd been in cash where your return would have been less than 1%. So for those people who are worried about buying the all-time highs or the high price of the year, even if you did and you're a long-term investor, you should still come out okay. Another page that refers to uh, bear markets, and actually I kind of got that out of sequence, by the way, that's, um, is page 30. And I didn't get it out of sequence. I'm just looking at my notes here. Page 30 also refers to bear markets. And I think this is a handy historical reference looking at uh, bear markets over time. And this is just talking about looking at going back to 1929. It looks at how long bear markets usually are, what the return was over that time. And I think it also goes to show how intermediate term treasuries have generated positive returns in each of those time frames. Still a powerful reason why one should diversify. The last page I'd like to talk to before I'm going to hand it off to Mark is page 20. And I think this is a, probably a little bit more of a nuance and perhaps a little bit more on the academic side, but I think it's kind of important. So page 20, this is talking about the risk budget promise. Again, if our portfolios are risk budgeted, risk numbers should be pretty much, pretty much in line with what investors expect, of course. So let's just look at sort of that middle portfolio, the risk budget 60. So again, saying we should be taking about 60% of the risk of the benchmark. You see the advisor one funds uh, 0.58, so basically 0.6, American funds 0.6, and core plus at 0.56. Basically, we look at a plus or minus uh, five basis points, be pretty much in line with the risk budget scores. One thing that we've had to do though, which is really interesting, is that we've been in a period of time where absolute volatility has been really low in the markets, and also the correlations have been dropping a lot between sectors, industries, and asset classes, um, which is a good thing, but it also means that a lot of portfolio risk numbers currently may appear to be lower uh, than they usually are, which means that if we do get a situation where volatility upticks and correlation starts to move higher, you'll see a lot of portfolio risk move higher as well. That's something we look at every day, every week, every month, of course, in various reports here at CLS, and to make sure that we maintain our risk budget promise. These are numbers we're always looking at. But it also just uh, let you know that uh, when you're looking at our portfolios or any portfolios, that portfolio uh, risk numbers may be deceptively low given this current market environment right now. We have um, Grant right now. Thanks, thanks, Rusty. So I'm going to start it. on page 63. Uh, so head towards the back, and this is should be familiar to a lot of uh, you that may get our monthly perspectives piece, but it's our CLS investment continuums. Um, and this is really showing 10 different areas or continuums or levers that we can pull um, to, to kind of add value to portfolios and adjust portfolios. Of course, there's a lot more than this, but these are kind of broad major areas that we debate on a, on a consistent basis, where we want to be and how we want to position ourselves. Uh, just a quick reminder, 
the yellow dot shows our over or underweight towards each of these continuums. Um, and then the gray box shows our bias in the next 12 months. So we may be overweight a continuum, but our bias is to reduce that and vice versa. One thing I wanted to highlight here that's been, been a larger change in recent, recent months, or at least kind of in, in 2017 for us, um, is the bond quality continuum on the middle of the, the right-hand side. We have moved both from a bias and a portfolio weight in, in uh, low quality or, or credit um, or fixed junk fixed income, if you will, um, to a higher quality uh, stance in, in recent months. Um, and, and that has moved, and you've seen that move in a lot of portfolios, um, and that has moved at an overall aggregate level as we display on this page as well. And that's our bias going forward. Number of reasons for that, um, we'll get into a little bit here shortly, but a lot of it has to do with just the risk reward going forward for capital appreciation in higher yielding fixed income sectors is not necessarily worth the incremental yield that we're getting from those areas. So um, we've looked to, to do that in a lot of different portfolios and it kind of depends on the, the mandate of the portfolio, how that is set up in the risk level. Um, but I just wanted to highlight that as a, as a major change that has occurred. But either way, this is a great page to kind of display CLS's views really on one one page um, and, and talk about what we're thinking currently and, and what we're thinking going forward. The next two pages um, basically describe what was going on in the continuums and, and we refer to um, you know how we're positioned in each one of those and how we're looking at those going forward just in a, in a quick meaningful uh, bullet or two uh, on the comments on page 64 and 65. Now on page 66 um, is our equity sector outlook. So sectors um, have been you know historically been a way to invest for for a lot of people. Um, we really like to use factors um, you know, as part of our smart beta theme and, and looking at factor investing is, is very important to portfolios. Um, sectors, countries, and, and other areas are, are ways to to add that similar uh, level of value. Um, we highlight sectors because I think it, it appeals to a lot of, in, um, it's intuitive to investors and, and they want to know kind of where we're at and these on these areas. So the equity sector outlook shows are over and underweight to different sectors. Um, you can see there's a lot of neutrals on there currently. Um, some of those are, uh, you know, true neutrals, but we also have to, to bring in the differentiation between overseas markets and domestic markets. We may favor one sector overseas and not domestically, and that may uh, kind of water down the overall effect there. Um, but I wanted to highlight a few. So financial is an area we, we moved to an overweight in the middle of last year, continued to, to favor financials. There's a, there's a lot of benefit to a portfolio that has fixed income in it to hold financials. Um, as inter when interest rates rise, that's profitability, um, you know, favorable for banks and, and financial institutions. Valuations are also at multi-decade lows. Um, and you're, you're starting to see higher quality balance sheets, um, not only here, but in areas like Europe um, and even the, the Far East or, or in Japan, there's, there's a big pickup in, in the quality level of, of these financial institutions, which we think is great going forward. Potentially, um, whether rates rise or not, there, there's still a potential for these, these firms to, to make more money than they have in the past in those valuations. Um, are, are very attractive there as well. A couple other areas we're looking at that currently, um, you know, are listed as neutral, but areas we're, we're looking at adding to. Um, healthcare and then consumer staples have, have attractive valuations. Um, some of the performance hasn't quite been there um, in, in recent uh, months, but uh, that's something we're, we're monitoring closely and then looking to add to those positions. Um, in, in those areas. And you may recognize we've perennially, or fat, the, for the past several years, 
have had an overweight in information technology. Um, we still favor those firms and, and do have, um, you know, a, a sizable weight in, in tech firms, um, but that has just come down a bit. And part of that is just, you know, there's other areas of the market we want to spend some of that cash as well. Um, and, and some of the big, big cap tech firms, we want to make sure that we're being prudent with our allocations um, in those areas. And finally, just on the next page where there are no neutrals on page 67 is the fixed income sector outlook. So effectively, we've been underweight treasuries and overweight these um, spread sectors, if you will, uh, for some time. You know, that's changing. As I mentioned, you know, high yield has moved to an underweight from an overweight in recent um, in recent months. Um, so we have seen some some differentiation there. Um, but currently, just with the history of, of Treasury prices um, and yields, um, you know, the, the current yield environment isn't great there. Um, but that is an area that we're starting to, to look at more and more as the quality fixed income space. So um, I guess, in short, our fixed income positioning is ever changing. And that's part of one of our themes in creative diversification is being tactical with your fixed income allocations. So keeping track of kind of our current thinking and what we're looking at in fixed income markets, um, this slide, although it's at the very back of the reference guide, um, is a great place to, to do that and stay on top of things here. Um, with that, I'll send it back to you, Rusty. All right, thanks, Grant. This slide is referring to the bond market outlook. We're looking at historical annualized returns going back to the 1920s. I think this is, a powerful slide for so many reasons. I think that a lot of people think that uh, markets, whether you're looking at stocks or bonds, are basically a coin flip. They're decidedly not. Uh, granted, we don't know exactly what uh, the any time frame may hold for us, particularly in the near term. We do know the markets have a strong positive expectation, and that is particularly so with the bond market. This, even in a rising rate environment, the bond market generally produces positive returns. And I think that's the big takeaway. But when we look at here, we can basically look at the frequency of historical rolling 12-month annualized returns going back to the 1920s. And we'll see how often returns have been over 20% in terms of total return. And then you can see all the various buckets on the left-hand side. Uh, the second column is looking at, according to historical averages, the frequency of those returns. And the big takeaway is if you look at the bottom three rows, so what are the chances of a loss for the U.S. bond market? you add up those three numbers, it adds up to 15%. So basically one out of seven years, the bond market has a negative return. And that's over a 12 month time frame. Uh, the chances of a positive return actually go up um, the longer the time frame. Of course, that's the same thing with the stock market. You can also see how often the bond market has had a loss of more than 10%. At least going back to the 1920s, it hasn't happened yet. It doesn't mean it couldn't happen moving forward. But again, I think that there's a lot of talk out there talking about how scary the bond market is, um, how you could get destroyed in it. I've seen such headlines about that. And that just doesn't match up with the historical experience. Um, now, the far right column is looking at our expectations. When we do expected returns here at CLS, when we sit down with the portfolio management team, everybody has to talk about their expected returns in terms of probabilities. And so we've basically forced everybody to have an allocation to each of those respective buckets. And the only rule is, is anything is possible. We shouldn't be surprised by any market environment. So nobody can put a 0% chance um, because that would just be silly, um, in my opinion, because again, anything is possible. And you can see that our expectations, though, are for um, a loss in the bond market are greater than historical averages. If you had those bottom three, bottom three columns, 
it actually adds up to about a 37% chance we could see a loss over the next 12 months. Again, that would be related to interest rates rising. Again, so the summary here is that the bond market is still most likely going to generate a positive return, even if we think that rates could increase moving forward. Now, the next page is uh, the very, on page 54, and this is the bond market performance during rising rates. And this is some work that another one of our portfolio managers did, Josh Jenkins. And again, I think this is an incredible slide as well. And this is showing intermediate term treasury bond uh, forward returns under certain situations. So what we're looking at is really the columns to the rise during a rate height cycle. And what is the return uh, for the bond market in those particular times when the Federal Reserve is raising rates, raising rates as they are now? You can see, uh, so the fourth column over, fifth column over is one year roll in return. So uh, how often during a rate high cycle have we seen, um, going back to the 19, early 60, 62, we've had 190 episodes or instances where uh, the, the Federal Reserve has been raising rates. You can see the average return for the bond market during that time frame is 5.4%. And the market has been up 92% of the time. So this runs counter again to the narrative that we often hear in the media that the Federal Reserve is raising rates, expect losses. Well, the one-year time frame is 92% of the time you've actually had gains. If you actually stretch out that time frame to three years and five years, at least historically, we have not seen a loss in the bond market as of yet uh, when the Federal Reserve is raising rates. Now, the one thing you can say, at least for the one-year and three-year numbers, is that they are below average returns for the bond market. So if you compare the second column, one-year rolling return, this looking at all market environment, to the rate height cycle, uh, the, the bond market has an annual return on average of 6.9%, and when the Federal Reserve is raising rates, it's 5.4. So you do get returns which are below average, but they're still positive. So again, um, I probably speak more to advisors and clients about the bond market than the stock market. I think a lot of people are worried, and, and I, we think you don't really have to be. We don't even think that rates have to rise that much. Um, our expectations that they won't. But if they do, that the bond market will still likely generate positive returns. All right, so let me see here. I have also lost my connection, so I cannot see the questions that have come in. I know we have a lot of attendees. I know that uh, one question that came in earlier before I lost my connection to the, the webinar is talking about the corporate earnings landscape right now. Uh, how does it look? Uh, what sectors are doing better than others? And what does this mean for the stock market for CLS positioning? And on this, Grant is, uh, is definitely our in-house expert on corporate earnings. So Grant, um, can you answer those questions? Sure, thanks, Rusty. Yeah, we've seen corporate earnings come in better than expected, um, which is typically the case. Uh, usually you get about 60, 65% of companies beating earning estimates. Um, but it's actually in the 70-75% range this year, which is good to see. But also the growth rate of those firms um, is higher than expected as well. Corporate earnings in general um, were expected to grow something like 5%. They've grown closer to, to 7%. And so that's, that's great um, from, from that perspective as earnings drive stock prices. We've seen a couple interesting tidbits in, in some sectors, retail being one of them, where you know, I think we, we think some firms are being punished harder for missing not just earnings, but missing certain parts of their um, their kind of earnings report or their their balance sheet that that they previously uh, were expected to be. So we've seen a little bit uh, kind of a harsh reaction by the market in certain areas like that. 
Um, but in certain parts of the market, like big tech, cap tech, that's, um, you know, the valuations have been running for a year, for uh, several years, semiconductors, an area like that. Um, missing certain sectors like that, uh, like missing a database growth rate or something um, has been unduly punished, I think, in a lot of places. So we're trying to sift through that and find sectors. Um, as I mentioned, Staples is an area um, that we're looking at. Healthcare is another one that um, have good, strong earnings growth, uh, attractive valuations, but may, the market may not be pricing that in as, as appropriately as before. And earnings season gives us a great opportunity to, uh, to do that. Russ, you have a question on, on coming in yeah. on my side here. Uh, so good question on, on slide 66 I covered earlier on the equity sector outlook. Um, the third column is, is on valuation, and we kind of show over, under, and, and you know, neutral for a valuation standpoint. We calculate that as a relative valuation um, back to 2001 using not just price to earnings, but also price to book, price to cash flow, price to sales, and then um, we, we've used a dividend to price metric in there as well. Um, so it, we like to look at that as a relative valuation number. Um, it gives us insight into how a sector may have historically traded. So technology firms, for instance, trade at a premium to the market. We want to know how, if it's trading at an above average or below average premium to the market over time. And so that's why we use that, that metric. Um, and it's something, something we've, we've favored for some time. So we also want to highlight extremes. So that on, the, the green plus indicates an undervalued sector um, that's at a one standard deviation level um, or uh, of undervaluation. So not just above or below neutral, but um, you know at a significant level of under overvaluation in that page. That's a great question. I'm so glad somebody raised that question because this arguably is one of the more important pages in understanding how we are building and positioning portfolios. And as Grant mentioned, when we do say evaluation is a plus or minus, those are those really are looking at extremes. Uh, something can still be undervalued and just simply not be an extreme, and we could still like it. So a good example right now is information technology says that valuation is fair. Um, actually, it has just been emerging from um, what we thought was kind of an extreme undervaluation. Um, but we still think, for instance, the technology still is undervalued, just not as much as it once was. So then very important, we do have a chart pack, which is available, which is compliance improved. Uh, again, some uh, advisors like to use it. Again, it's not required, but it's a, it's a good resource in going through that chart pack, get a good understanding of what we're currently over, underweight, what we're buying and selling. Also, to the, the far right of the two columns, looking at performance, we're just looking at performance over the last three months in one year. Uh, these numbers are pretty important when it comes to our trading decisions. Um, they can influence our, our expected returns and our investing decisions on the margin, but those are really kind of almost more for our trading considerations. Another way to think about that is if for some reason we were let's say, pick on a sector, let's say like materials, currently the valuations are not attractive or, or real estate is um, actually, no, let's, those aren't great examples because I'm trying to look for, well, let's just say real estate. So real estate right now has a minus valuation. That means it'd be overvalued. But let's say the performance in the three month and one year timeframes were pluses. That means it's still outperforming. We don't like the sector uh, because it is overvalued, but let's say that we were uh, overweight or um, even if we weren't overweight, we probably wouldn't be selling it until we start saw, seeing some of those technical indicators starting to move down in the three month or one year time frame. 
Sabrina, you're on the side with the questions. Do you have any more? I know I've got sure. one more for you regarding the commodity sector, but if there are other questions, let's let's hit those. Yeah, I've got I've got one got one for you um, that I know you'll love to answer. Um, you know, recently we see a lot of concern or advisors expressing concern about geopolitical risk, um, especially with North Korea, and then um, you know political risk domestically, gridlock in Washington, things like that. Um, as an investor, as a long-term investor, how do you look at those instances and how do they affect markets? Yeah, probably one of the most common questions we get all the time, particularly when there's something that's big in the news. I think as an investor, now again, we're talking as an investor, we're not talking as a citizen or a politician or a pundit, but it's really as an investor in how we manage money and how others should, I really think, look at, at managing money is that geopolitical stuff happens all the time and also almost by definition, there are surprises. So you can't really prepare for it. If um, a lot of times you can get a market shock, of course, and but sometimes you don't. Brexit was supposed to be a big market shock, and except for a couple hours, um, where the market was down, actually it was off to the races. So a lot of people spend a, a once again from an investing standpoint, a lot of people spend too much time worrying about the geopolitical stuff. If the market does have a reaction of one way or the other, this is actually pretty key. As an investor, we're there to take advantage of what the market is giving us. So if the market is, is overly emotional, whether uh, it's moving towards uh, moving lower or moving higher, that is something for us to respond to and to react to. And that is what we think is kind of the proper course to managing some of that. As for Wall Street, I mean, not Wall Street, but for uh, Washington, D.C. and the gridlock, you know, there's so many studies that try to link stock market performance to uh, political policy, and a lot of it is, it's not really great scientific studies or uh, great models, but in general, uh, when there is gridlock in Washington, D.C., that tends to be a positive for the markets over time. So uh, the gridlock that we're seeing isn't necessarily a negative in the market. All right, we have a couple minutes left here. If, if we've got the time, uh, the one asset class that has been beaten up is commodities and natural resources. And Grant also covers that area pretty much in depth. Grant, what are, your, what are our current thoughts there? Sure, Rusty, that's a, that's a great point. I think um, it has been beat up significantly and there are some attractive valuations in, in the sector. Um, one, natural resources as a whole are, are related to commodity prices. Um, but can be related to commodity prices at different stages of a commodity pr production, whether it's from the ground or the end product. So there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of places to look um, in that asset class. Um, commodities themselves, um, according to our valuation statistics, kind of looking at a real or inflation adjusted price of a broad commodity index are at some of the lowest levels they've been in, in decades. Um, and so commodities themselves, and, and you know, that's maybe not um, a surprise to people after what we've seen in oil prices. So we think commodities themselves have a lot of opportunity, um, you know, for what it's worth, it's just one week. But last week we saw the first 1% down move in the markets or uh, in the global market this year, commodities were actually positive on the week. So there are areas, um, you know, having that uncorrelated asset class, especially an uncorrelated asset class that's showing attractive valuations makes a ton of sense. Um, on the global natural resources standpoint, there are a lot of natural resource companies tied to those commodities that are also very depressed in price. And you see some stabilization here in, in oil and gold prices, 
um, kind of between $40 and $50 a barrel and now, you know, around the $12 to $1,300 level in gold. Um, that's great for those companies, that stability, uh, and, and they can grow earnings. And that's it. That's something we've seen in the earnings um, area as well in some materials and energy names, a lot of growth. So we think there's a ton of opportunity, attractively valued asset class, one of the few that remains um, on an absolute basis. So uh, we like those markets, think they make sense in investor portfolios as diversifiers and also return enhancers. Great. Well, thanks, Grant. Uh, we're pushing up against 30 minutes now. And again, I'd like to thank everybody for your time and interest in CLS Investments. Again, uh, please provide us feedback. Um, sorry to tell you, we did have a couple rough edges there. We did miss out on Mark, who is a fantastic commentator on the markets, both in terms of the markets, the economy, and the situation. Uh, he's a powerful voice in the markets. Uh, he can be a contrary voice on the markets, and obviously one of our most valuable members of our team. So sorry we missed out on that. Again, though, any feedback that you have, please let us know. Um, again, basically everything that we've produced uh, that's client interfacing is built off of your feedback. And again, we do appreciate your time and, and we do look forward to hearing from you next month. Thank you, everybody.